So I wanted to tell you something that has nothing to do with the talk tonight. About, I think it's really important to honor. Some of you in coming weeks may be invited to see if you'd like to be on the board. And I want you to know that we have a most remarkable group of people on the board and in the teacher group. And we just spent some time this afternoon really going through a process of healing for some difficult stuff that's happened. And I want you to know that it's incredibly powerful to be part of a group that really does that. And it's not that being in a sangha like this doesn't have its moments of difficulty. It does. You know, we're people, we bump up against each other, we do stupid things, or we say things that we shouldn't say, or whatever, you know, we, we all do it, you all do it. And But it is an enormous piece of practice when people decide that they don't want it to stop there and they come together and do what it takes to heal. And I'm very, very grateful to have a board and a teacher group that has that kind of intention and I want you all to appreciate it and to know that it's true. So you might not, you know, some of that stuff probably doesn't filter down. Or maybe it does, I don't know. But uh, I want the good part to filter down as well. So I'm a little sorry that Alice got out before I said that, but maybe she'll hear about it or I can tell her myself. So some years ago I had a very good friend who lived in another state who had a recurrence of her breast cancer. And I went to see her in the summer before she died. Um, She died 11 years ago. And, um, And when we had found out that the, there are two stories. The first one is about when, when we found out that the cancer had come back, A friend of mine called me to tell me what the diagnosis was, another practitioner, and she said, you know, impermanence sucks. Mm -hmm. Which was a little, you know, it's a little rough way to say it, but it was so true. Uh, Here was our good friend who was so ill, and the chances were really good that she would die, and she did, and it was really awful. And nobody wanted that to happen. And so often when, when impermanence arises in that way, when something that we love is taken away, something or someone that we love is taken away from us, we're affronted or we're insulted, we're certainly knocked off balance, we're terrified, Sometimes we're just undone by impermanence. How can this be? And in the last couple of weeks ago on my road up where I live in Aptos, um, one of my neighbors died in her house by herself. They found her four days later. Just like that, boom. Nobody expected it. She was, I'd last seen her driving her little car up and down the road. We chatted seemed fine, and now she's gone. Whoa, what happened? You know, or I think of um, a student, someone who used to sit with this group many years ago, who 
who had a daughter who was killed very suddenly in a horrific automobile accident. And, you know, she'd had her breakfast that morning, and by lunchtime she was gone. A really young woman. So, you know, what do we do? Or, or, you know, or the kind of situation that many of us encounter where someone we know gets that very difficult diagnosis all of a sudden, and, and then you're really facing what is it to have just a few months left to live. And sometimes, of course, it gets a little more complicated because the person is in some way involved with their own death. Sometimes it's a suicide. You know, I think of a young man, a, da- a son of a really good friend of mine that I grew up with who hanged himself when he was 19, you know. And he had just seen his mother and assured her that he was all right. And then half an hour later, he was gone. Or the young man that we've all been reading about in the papers this week who up on the north coast, you know, was out camping and partying with his friends, decided to go swimming at four o'clock in the morning, and died, didn't make it back to shore. And so then, what do we do then, you know, when when there's that sense of all of that, oh my God, it's so impermanent, this person is gone. But then, you know, there's a little bit of an edge of, and, um, and why, and why did he do it, or why did they do it, and and so the people who are left behind are still here and still trying to cope and coping with loss and with grief and with anger. And, you know, sometimes the anger's just as the universe. You know, it's not fair. He's too young. She's too young. You know, why them and not me? I spent some time this morning talking with a student who lives in another state who's a pediatrician and who has many, many times sat with children who were dying. And it's really just beginning, partly because of her practice, to take in that how come and why and, and the pain and the difficulty of it. And, you know, sometimes the person who died, you know, why did they do that? And couldn't they have, you know, couldn't they have known that this was not such a smart thing to do? Or how come they couldn't pull it together to stay harder or whatever it is that we have to say when we really don't want to lose somebody that we love. So I think, you know, no matter where we are in our practice, for the, unless I think you're very, very far along, when something like that happens, we don't like it. We don't like it when our noses are rubbed in impermanence. We just don't. So there's a wonderful story about Ajahn Chah that many of you I know know. Ajahn Chah is the Thai meditation master who was the kind of grandfather teacher of many of um, my teachers. And he had a teacup that he loved. You know, you could imagine. Might have been a bit more elegant than this, maybe with gilt and flowers and things. And, And so he would have his tea every afternoon with his teacup. And one of his students said to him once, they said, well, Ajahn Chah, aren't you attached to that teacup? I mean, what's going to happen? And Ajahn Chah picked up the cup and he kind of looked at it. He said, I consider this cup to be already broken. I consider this cup to be already broken. Now that's, you know, that's a very powerful teaching if we really take it in. And I can think of some times when I've talked with people, you know, particularly perhaps with parents, 
and there's been some sense of incredible attachment to their children and the question has come up well what if my child died now this, that's a very very difficult thing the death of a child what if my child died and and sometimes if you can bring yourself to consider it really the question is this child is already dead you know what if we began to hold our children as though they were that fragile you know and in some senses they could be gone at any moment I mean you begin to see that it, it can begin to change the flavor of our interactions with people when we really understand that and you know what how can we look at that like what if you're you know, can you hold your partner as already dead what if some of you are here without your partners tonight what if you never see him or her again you know, I think of that. My husband drives the hill on a regular basis. And I think of that often. You know, what if he gets in the car this morning? And that's it. You know, he's already gone. And, or, or your dog, or your cat, all of these beings that we're so attached to, your very beloved friend whom you just adore, or yourself. You know, what if, you know, I could be gone Tonight, I could. And that's really hard to take. It's sort of like, wait a minute, I'm signing up to teach retreats in late 2009 and 2010. What do you mean I'm not going to be here? Of course I'm going to be here. That's, that's, it's in my appointment book. You know, if it's in my appointment book, it must mean that I'm going to be here. You know, um, So I should at least be able to guarantee that I'm going to live that long. The Buddha says, you ready for this? The Buddha says, if you've taken an in-breath, you get the out-breath, for sure. That's all you get. That's a little spooky, huh? You know, so that's all that you're guaranteed. So it's not very much. And, of course, we've all had the experience, and if you haven't, you will, of, you know, something happens in your health life, the x-ray that doesn't look quite right, or the cough that's producing really yerky looking stuff or the lump that suddenly appears here or there and of course I think, I used to think I was the only one who thought this way but I now know that it's not true. Immediately the thought goes through, what if, what if this is it? What if this is the cancer? What if this is the disease? What if and I'm suddenly, you know, looking, you know, I thought, I always thought I was going to teach all those retreats, but all of a sudden I'm thinking about, you know, surgeries and chemos and, and funerals and all those kinds of things. And we, we see that sometimes just like that, our life can take a right angle turn and everything is different. Everything is different. So one of the chants that is often done in the monastery in Buddhist practice if I can find it is um, something that's called the five subjects for frequent recollection and this is a reflection that I completely recommend to every one of you it's very very helpful to take some time to do this on a pretty regular basis So it goes like this. I am of the nature to die, to age. 
I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And then it points to the one thing that we have. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Thus we should frequently recollect. So that's pretty powerful. You know, sort of every day reminding yourself that you are of the nature to age, to sicken, and to die. You're going to get separated from everything that you've managed to collect over time. And um, and that all you have is your karma. And so how do we live, really, how do we live with equanimity in the face of this? That's a very big question. And of course, one way to do it is to pretend it's not there, right? Just to ignore the fact that you're going to die and just try to pretend that it's not, you know, and we all say, well, if I die, if some, if something happens to me, you know, that's, that's the phrase, right? And it's never if something happens to me, it's when something happens to me. And in fact, probably more explicitly, when I die or when I become seriously ill. So in the equanimity practice, in the actual training of the mind for equanimity. And let me just say that mindfulness is one of the best trainings for equanimity because in your mindfulness practice, as you sit here on the cushion, you are doing your best to stay present no matter what comes up in the mind and the heart or what goes on in the room. And your job is to stay here. And then by doing that, you actually train yourself in equanimity. And it's helpful to think of some of the other things. And one of the lines in the equanimity practice is everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. It's just how it is in time and space. There is nothing that is of the nature to arise that is not of the nature to pass away. So when I went to see that friend, the one who was dying, that one summer, and she, at that point, had about six months to live, although we didn't know that. And I remember her one night, we'd gone out and had dinner with a friend and had a cookout and all of that kind of thing. She looked particularly beautiful that night. And um, as I left her at her house, she sort of leaned out her back door and she said, you know, she said, everybody is so fragile. And then she said, especially me. And it was very, very sweet to just really honor, you know, everybody's fragility and her fragility. We are all of the nature to arise. We've all arisen. It's too late. You can't not arise. You're here. And so we are, therefore, of the nature to pass away. We are all very, very fragile. So woven into all of the Buddha's teachings, is the notion of impermanence. 
it comes up again and again and again. It's considered to be one of the major aspects of insight in our practice. And and we understand in those teachings that we are not solid and we are not separate and we are not permanent. We're transitory, we're fragile and utterly impermanent. And any attempt to create solidity and to create self, to make it really solid for ourselves or for another is to create suffering. It will always do that. It's sort of invariable. And so we, you know, but we do it. You know, we have these, we have the, what are known as the five aggregates. And, and so that's form and feeling and perception and mental formations and consciousness. And this is sort of the stuff of what your experience is made. And we take all of that and we pull it together and we say it's, it's one thing, but it's not. It's five separate things and, um, and not one of them is self, not one. And so, but we we create selves. Each of you, you know, has some sense of self, I'm sure. And often, if you're like me, it feels pretty solid and pretty permanent and pretty real. And um, we, you know, I've got have a strong sense of identification with my body and a strong sense of identification with the stories, with the mental formations that my mind makes. And and we um, we use these to kind of gather our experiences together and we create more intentions and more actions and we perpetuate particular cycles of suffering. We don't like the sense that we're impermanent, that we're not solid and separate, that there isn't anything inherently self. And so, you know, we as I said, often look the other way. I think of um, my, I have to think of who this person is, my father-in-law's wife, who at 85 will not talk about the fact that she's going to die and has not written a will. You know, so it's not going to happen as far as she's concerned. And she doesn't want to go there. And she's not alone, you know. Probably every one of us has some little way in which we're just like her, I know, certainly, that I do. So, in beginning to bring our attention to our experience and beginning to let go even a little bit of the notion of a solid and separate self, we often begin to see that the picture is very big. My friend Gil Fronstall has a very simple practice. He likes to remind himself that he's one of six billion people. Now, one six billionth <laughs> doesn't sound like very much, does it? You know. And you know, when I'm in some kind of distress, do I think that I'm only one six billion? No. You know, I must be at least half of the world or, or something like that. I mean, it just seems like it's so big and it's just so important that I do it right. But it's really, I'm only one six billionth. So, you know, if I mess it up, even maybe that's not going to be too awful. 
And I mean, it's not that we you know, don't go around intentionally messing things up, but we're so hard on ourselves and we forget that we're such a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of what exists. And now, you know, as we more and more have a literal big picture of the universe and have all these wonderful tools that can look way out and see how incredibly vast it is. Not only are you one six billionth, but the world is one, I don't know how many billions of stars and solar systems there are out there, but we're really, really small, really small. And that's actually, I think, any way that your picture begins to get a little bigger is part of what is very, very helpful in bringing some equanimity to this notion of impermanence. It's whatever it is that's happening. It's happening with me or without me. And um, there's a way in which there's some ease that comes with that much larger picture. And so practicing is really important. You know, this this practice of ours where you put your butt on the cushion and you do your best to be mindful for some period of time every day is a wonderful practice. And if you're not, you know, maybe you're, you don't have too much time on the cushion, but then maybe you're bringing some mindfulness to your walk or to certain actions in your day and ways that you really integrate your practice and you and you begin to develop that sense of equanimity that allows us to encounter impermanence and death. And, and then we can really begin to look at it. There's a beautiful story in the suttas about a woman. I always think of her as Kisa Gotami, but I, in the sutta passage that I um, printed out for, to, to bring with me tonight, she's called Skinny Gotami. <laughs> I don't know whether she was really skinny or not, but um, so she. But it said she, her name was Gotami Tisa, but because her body was very skinny, she was called Skinny Gotami. Poor Gotami. So her son died. She had a baby boy, and um, he grew up a little bit, and he was running around and playing, and then he died. He met his end while he was playing. It said. And she was just bereft, as you could imagine, just heartbroken, you know. And and um, she didn't want to give him up, and she didn't want to have him, his body taken to the charnel ground. And so she took his dead body, and she carried him on her hip the way a mother carries a child, and went from door to door saying, you know, give me medicine for my son. And people made fun of her, you know, what good is that? You know, he's already dead. And, and she just didn't quite get it. She couldn't take it in. She was so, so crazed with her sorrow. And so she went to see the Buddha. Somebody finally um, said, go to the Buddha and ask him about medicine for your son. And so she goes to the Buddha and... Um, So, and he gives her this task, and he says, you're to go around through the city from house to house and and get mustard seeds. They will be for the medicine for your son. And so you are to get a mustard seed, but here's one condition. 
the house that you get any mustard seeds from must never have experienced any death, ever. So she thought, well, get lots of mustard seeds, right? But she went from house to house and she discovered that there was no house that had not experienced a death, you know parents and children and and so she wasn't able to collect any mustard seeds but you know in doing that it says her madness left her and her right mind was established and so she realized that um, she says it's not just a truth for one village or town nor is it a truth for a single family but for every world saddled by gods and men, this is indeed what is true, impermanence. And so she goes on, actually, to become quite an enlightened being. So, you know, we can reflect on that. I mean, most of us, if we start thinking about it, we don't know any households where there's never been any death. Or you can do other things. One of my teachers early on in my practice said, just suggested that I start noticing all the dead things around. You know, to just begin to notice roadkill and dead trees and leaves that had fallen down and to really begin to see, you know, how much it is woven through the very fabric of our existence. The classical practice was to go out to the charnel grounds and to, you know, just sit there and be there. In, in some places the bodies were just left to decay and in other places they were burned. Um, our friend Bob Stahl has quite an interesting set of pictures of a body that's been left on the charnel ground and in its various stages of decay, which is a very powerful practice, just even to see the pictures, which is a much easier way of doing it than being with the actual decaying body. Or my friend John Travis, whom some of you know, ended up sitting in India a couple of years ago. He thought he'd found the perfect cave, and then he found out that it was just downwind from where they were cremating bodies. And so that was, you know, the smell of the bodies as they were being burned was very powerful and very strong. And a very real reminder of this will happen to me. That's the phrase that the Buddha recommends. That when we see the dead body or the, you know, smell the burning flesh, that we remind ourselves that at some time that will be ours. And these practices, they sound kind of morbid and gruesome, but they actually begin to develop equanimity with impermanence for ourselves and for others. So at the end of the five recollections, it says all we have is our karma. All we have is, I think of karma as the reverberations of our actions. And what's really interesting is, because we're not so much here to, or who knows what happens when we die, but what, what, we, what we, many of us know, is that when someone close to us dies, we still have the reverberation of their life. You really do. And so there's that sense that the relationship itself that you had with the other person still exists. There's, there's um, that sort of more than 
that happens between two people. You know, you have two friends or a couple, and then there's that sense that the relationship itself has its own life. And, or just think of the reverberation of anybody's life, and, and there's that sense that it's still here. And I've heard so many people say, and they're always a little like, should I really say this? They could do this. And they say, you know, it feels like she's still here. And then often they say, I talk to her regularly. And, you know, it's true. And many of us do that. We have family or friends, and there's that sense that we can still feel them because the reverberation of their life is still with us. Sometimes that's not so good. Sometimes it's really hard that the reverberation of you know, somebody very difficult was around. But it does stick around, and there's a way that we can continue to be with it and to hold it. And I think that's really important to remember, that that, that karmic peace remains even when um, the person dies. After all, the Buddha has been gone for 2,500 years, Right? Is he gone? Well, yeah. He's very gone. He's been dead for a long time. But look, we're sitting here tonight and we're having this conversation and it's based on his teachings. And so the reverberation of his life is still echoing, you know, 2,500 years later. There's a, someone's, when my dad died a couple of years ago, a year ago, someone sent me a poem by Alastair Reed. I'm just going to read you the last few lines. And he's, he's taking care of his father who's going to die fairly soon. And he says, But on any one of these nights soon, for you the dark will not crack with dawn. And then I will begin with you that hesitant conversation going on and on and on. I'm really honoring that place where where we continue even after someone dies. There's some interesting stories around the death of the Buddha, you know, and whether people should grieve or not. And, you know, those monks, they're not so big on grieving sometimes. But I imagine many of the people around him did grieve. And um, I'm not so sure that that's a problem as long as we knew that the cup was already broken, right? So there's that place where, and I remember noticing it very much as my father neared his death, that I knew he was dying. And I was already grieving a lot before he died. And I knew he would die. And when he died, I still grieved. But I knew he would die, and I knew it was not wrong that he died. I knew it was in the nature of things that he was impermanent. And so there was this incredible sweetness that went through that whole process, and that has continued since his death. So it's different, I think, and there's a way that we can rest more easily with it and with a great deal more equanimity when we know that the, the cup is already broken or the person is in a sense, already dead. There's a chant that's often sung or chanted at funerals, and um, 
I'll chant it for you in a moment. It says, Anicca Vata Sankara Upadavaya Damino Upachitua Nirajanti Desang Upasamo Sukho. And so it means everything that has the nature to arise, has the nature to pass away, that same um, piece of the equanimity practice that I quoted. And then that anyone who realizes this and really sees it and understands it, they're the pers- that's the person who will be truly happy because they really understand and accept impermanence. So it goes like this. Anichavata Sankara Upadavaya Damino Upachitu Anirachanti Jaisang Upasamosuko So, I think that's enough for me. Let's see if there's any questions or comments. Please. Well, it's kind of home because I, I actually uh, do grief counseling Ooh. for volunteer work. And so uh, I guess it, I deal with it all the time. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my clients that I have now is a man who lost his wife. And, of course, as I help him, I keep thinking, wow, what if that would happen to me? And uh, so, you know, I also do the long drive over the hill. And, you know, that's plenty of time to think about all these things. Uh-huh. Uh, there's something... Well, there's there's one a couple observations I, I want to share because I, the one thing that I've seen is is people going through the grief and 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 I don't think there's a way around it. You can't, Mm-mm. you cannot isolate yourself, or no amount of Buddhist practice or whatever you do is going to keep you away from that sort of pain. But on the other hand, having watched people go through this, I've gone through it myself. And watching other people go through it, you see that there's a sense that life goes on. Mm-hmm. And for me, there's a, there's there's one piece missing in the five recollections, which is, and you touched upon it, and it's the the sense of of no self, which actually connects with something bigger, which is a sense of not necessarily smallness, but the other going in the other direction that that we we are part of something much bigger, mm-hmm. and that something bigger is us and so there's this a reflection for me that that's helped me a great deal which comes out of the the, the uh, Mahayana world which is this that sense of of uh, uh, getting in touch with that that oneness of not when you when you step out of the no when you step into the no self where you realize that well maybe these stories about me aren't so important and I can relax into the universe and that the the next step will show up. I can I can settle into what is here right now. That's the best I can do. Mm-hmm. And and even though everything is impermanent, I'm part of everything. So I can't fall out of this web. We have this illusion right. that we're separate, and that's where the pain comes from. Right. But it's not possible to fall out of this thing because right. and depending which Theravadan scholar you talk to. That how how much identification with the web or the big picture or the one they might shoot you down because yeah. they'll say well that's a self and that's not self either so yeah. that it's an endless arising and falling and it's process there's nothing but that's quibbling I think yeah. and and that sense of 
uh, somehow being so integrated into whatever the process is or whatever the web is or whatever whatever is. I mean, sometimes you can just, just all you can do is kind of go, oh. And that's actually Stephen Levine used to do that. You know, he used to say the, uh, whatever the, uh, is. <laughs> and, and I liked it. I mean, it's, it has its points. So, yeah, well, Zen, we can relax into it. In Zen, there's a, I mean, the, 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 the koan, uh, who am I, uh-huh. takes you right there. It's this sense of, uh, I am everything, so I can't fall out of it. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you do identify, but you identify with everything. You identify with the whole universe. So at that point, Whatever you can't fall out of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And the therapist may argue that's attachment, but... No, I don't think that Or, um, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> I think they say the same thing. Other questions or comments? Please. This is just a comment. I'm in the middle of reading the um, Tibetan book of Living and Dying. Oh, yeah, good. Right and it's such a good read, but two things that kind of, you kind of uh-huh. touched on these things. One was, um, you, you kind of touched on this too, was viewing your life instead of possibly viewing our life as these finite, you know, amounts of time, like this is our one shot, and when I die, this is it. It just talks about, you know, in, in Tibetan philosophy, it's just one, it's your next step. Right. And it just keeps going and going and going. Right. So um, the other part was the the sacredness of being born as a human they touch on in preparing for death. Mm-hmm. Um, and they equated, I think there's an analogy that if you took a life ring and you threw it out on the ocean and your chance of being born as a human is according to like a turtle sticking his head through that right. life ring. Right. That's how sacred like this. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful is. image. Thank you for that. Um, and yes, I mean whatever it is that we are, it's also extraordinary to have consciousness and 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 that's you know this is I mean the the understanding is that this being born as a human is exactly the right balance of suffering and good stuff to be able to wake up you know too much suffering you're kind of caught in the suffering too much good stuff you know why bother you know you're happy and so we have this particularly wonderful place where we can wake up and that sense that um, (coughs) whether you know, whatever it is that may be about the continuity of consciousness, there's a, a much earlier image than the Tibetan one of um, that what happens at death is like lighting one candle from another. And so is it the same life? Well, or light? Well, no. Is it different? Well, no. But clearly there's some way in which they connect. The, the Tibetan philosophy is a little more concretized around it, but... They both work, and yes, exactly, to not have a sense. And for those of you who might be skeptical about more than one lifetime, because there are people who are, there's, there's a wonderful question that's actually somewhere in the Buddhist text that says, well, if you knew you had many lifetimes, how would you live your life? And usually the answer is, you know, I'd do my best, I'd try to be nice, I'd try to, to do it such that when I got to the next lifetime that things were going to be good for me and all of that. And then if you only had this one, you knew that this was your only chance, what would you do? And usually the answer is pretty much the same thing. I'd do the best I could. I'd really live my life. I'd try to be kind. I'd try to have a reverberation that meant that my being here had mattered. And so in a way... No matter, so this is really for all of you, so that so that we can all be on the same page. It doesn't matter too much whether you understand that to be true or not, or maybe you're just waiting to see. Um, but that the important thing is that we live our lives. We really do understand 
and you're really pointing to that last part in the five recollections, what we have is our karma. And that's what carries through, is the karma. And so we can, we can tend to that. Because even if there isn't another lifetime, your karma carries on. We know that this is true. You are, we are sitting here because of George Washington and all those guys. You know, they had karma. And, and Martin Luther King and, you know, the Buddha and Marian Anderson and all, all kinds of amazing people who have lived and died and whose reverberation we are still experiencing. Oh. One more. Um, I just think it's uncanny that you that you brought up this topic tonight because I just I had a, a reflection this morning. Um, you know, Axel is my best beloved, and I'm very attached to him. Of course, he also does so many things that just drive me absolutely crazy. <laughs> I cannot yeah, believe that. Those of us who live with our best beloved can relate. You know, he leaves his dirty clothes piled up on the chair in the bedroom. And hey, this, this is being taped. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the socks piled up on the floor next to the bed. And there's always... Hey, hey, hey! <laughs> We'll make sure but it doesn't after, go on the web. After he left for work. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.